you wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more right through all these microphone cables. <laughs> Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. How do you talk about someone who is so multifaceted, talented, and who is a doer of things? By a doer of things, I mean that he, he, Hilton Els, is a curator, is a photographer, is a writer, is a director, is a professor, is an author. So I found some of his words to describe what it is that he does and some words about his art making. He says that art had to have some bearing in reality in order for me to bear it. My writing had to be rooted in real feelings that come with observing reality as truthfully as possible in order to have any respect for it at all. So when I think about this and I read his words, what his words are for me are proof of my own existence. Here is my conversation with Hilton Alls. Wow. I love your studio. It's good, right? It's really beautiful. It's good. You have more room than anybody I've ever known around here. Well, it's for you. It's really beautiful. You want to be in that space. And I like your necklace, too. Of course, I wanted to put you in here. Which one? The beads. I used to bead myself. Really? When I was little, yeah. Those are beautiful. Sharon Nova gave me these beads. They are from Nigeria. Wow. And they were money. They're very, very old. Wow. And I try and wear them every day to kind of walk around and and not feel alone. Yes. You know? Yes. When you wear, wear something like that, do you feel a connection to history or to the person that gave it to you? Both things at yes. the same time. Yeah. Both things at the same time. And let's talk about this idea of aloneness or reality. What does sure. that mean to you when you use that word? When I say so that I don't feel alone? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get caught in in thinking, like every person, that whatever I'm going through, that I say in quotes, uh, is only happening to me. And I know it isn't. I know it isn't. Mm-hmm. But I feel sometimes alone with the thoughts Mm -hmm. or alone with the feelings. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there are certain things you just, a person has to feel. Yeah. And and that those things are your, it's your path, it's your walk. It's not for anyone else to hold your hand through. It belongs to you. It belongs to the way that you see. It belongs to the way to the choices that you've made about who you are and how you move in the world. Well, that's fascinating because today was the first day um, in analysis where the doctor said to me, and it's your pain. And I thought, that sounds so hackneyed kind of. Um, I know that something is getting to me when it feels constructed or hackneyed. Hmm. What does that mean to own... It's yours. What does that mean, Helga, to you? Because I can't work it out in my mind what it is as artists we own. 
like because so much of what we do is ephemeral or doesn't have monetary value. So the idea of ownership <laughs> is very strange. But also I think as people of color, the idea of ownership is really strange. <laughs> really strange. And so when he said, it's yours, I kind of didn't understand and didn't like owning something. Really? It was too, it was funny. It was like two levels. It was, I don't understand what that means. And ownership of anything makes me queasy. Really? Yeah. It makes me feel like, am I now the oppressor? Uh huh. In part, I think that has to do with just the experience itself. Mm-hmm. If you speak with me about the experience you're having that is disconcerting or uncomfortable, I can listen, I can empathize, but at the end of the day, it is still your experience to work through, which so, is why you own it. So he says, so my anger, he said, you own, I own my anger. And that then, okay, so I'm going to take the, um, I'm going to take the old, very old feeling of being owned possessed off of it and say I'm just angry and so I can just say I'm angry yes yes and that's good yes first of all when are we ever allowed to be angry right part of why I think we're we're in any mess and I'm not even talking about the country I'm talking in our most basic communication why we're in the mess is because we don't own our anger Mm. We're so afraid of our anger. Mm. And sometimes there are people who are angry with me, and I just look at them and I say, okay. <laughs> and there's something about that, that is, that's very disarming. Yes. So it's not just anger we want to have, but we want the violence yes. that goes with the anger too. Exactly, and then that's to where we're going to justify how awful it is. Right. Right. But I don't feel violent. I just feel... Angry. Angry. And so the question then is, how does that manifest? And what do we do with it? Because in the place where, and maybe this is what your, your therapist was trying to get at with you, in the place where you don't own your anger, it's still in you, and it's going to leak out somewhere. Mm-hmm. It is. It's going to be in your next exchange with some person who bumps into you, who you perceive as having that's not, a, that's not honored your yeah. feelings. It's, it will be right there. That's fascinating because I felt dangerous this afternoon that if someone was unthinking and walking across the street looking at their iPhone <laughs> and bumped into me, I was going to hit them. Yeah. And that's the reason we can't own our anger is because then society as we know it would disintegrate, right? You think? Well, this is the idea. Like if you go around hitting people because you're angry. Well, hitting people I mean. is one thing. Yeah. But anger 
okay. to say, I am angry with you that you did this or that I feel you did this and so I feel this. I, I don't see that there's anything wrong with this. Okay. No, nothing. there's nothing wrong with that. But how do we address it to – how do we um, make the anger – how do we direct it to the correct person if it's a parent? Then we have to build the muscle. We have to start practicing with each other. Mm-hmm. You have to be angry with me and in some moment and know that our friendship, our sense of home, our sense of belonging, our feeling of community with one another is not at risk. It's not endangered. Because... You or I are angry at the other. Right. That that has to be the first agreement. Right. The second is that then we have to practice it and we actually have to bring our anger. We have to to do it. How do you practice that, Helga, with? It's not an an easy thing Mm -hmm. because I have all those fears about losing the community. That you've built. Yeah. Yeah. But, for instance, I have a very good friend who, um, I don't know, we were, we were talking one day and I threw something at him. And I didn't do it in a way, in any way to be disrespectful or anything. I was being playful. And that was not the way he perceived it. And when I tell you he was angry with me, like I was scared that wow. he was so angry wow. with me. And even if I felt it was playful, for him, it was careless and disrespectful. But then I could look at him and say, I'm sorry. And I didn't, I didn't right. know. And I will never do that again. And it was hurtful. It was uncomfortable. We, I think we were both a little bit shaken. I felt after much closer to him because he actually brought himself to me. So when we speak of anger, as anger is one of the more dangerous emotional truths, or why we taught that it is a danger to you and to other people. I think we're taught that as a way of keeping ourselves down, um, of repressing to the point of illness at times, um, this terrible true self. I agree. The true self who says, I'm angry, um, don't do that again. Um, That's a true self. And the other self is the self that we know is acceptable. And I feel that that part of life or my life, part of why I wanted to do this work with this program Mm -hmm. is to continue through conversation to give people tools to keep reclaiming all these parts of themselves and and they are the parts of myself I want to have always also Mm -hmm. and so how do we do it we we have to practice and for sure slaves could not have anger Right. right right And it's so trippy to think about how we begin to untangle.
untangle all of this? Well, this is where I started with the... Um, I was describing the autobiography of Frederick Douglass to the analyst, and he says, which parts, you know, jump out at you? And I said, well, one, when his grandmother, I don't remember if it's his grandmother or um, another relative, because she's outlasted her time to breed and caretake, is an old woman. They just put her in a shed in in the forest, and she's by herself. That's one thing. Another thing is when he's um, he's very close as a boy to his grandmother, and one day he's she's just gone. And so what I'm learning is as I read these various narratives about black men in particular, how to remain a socialized person in the world without blame, right? But the ability to describe history better. Mm. Um, I feel I was able to do it okay before, but I think in reading these these really incredible narratives of discovery and self-discovery that I'm now... I think what happened before was that I was afraid to read them because they were I didn't want to see how close I was to something. Yeah. I really have avoided these books for a long time and I would start and feel ah oh, it feels so constructed and I would be bored in quotes, right? Right? Oh, this is not me. This was a long time ago. Actually, it's not a long time ago. No, it's not a long time ago. And what he's describing about the danger, the physical danger, is one thing. And then he's describing his quest to read. This is what devastated me. Yes. In that autobiography that the worst day almost of his life yes. is the day that he learns to read yes. and that he can really understand the conditions in which he is living yes. and surviving. Yes. And when, oh, and then, yes. And then the doctor then said, and what else? And I said, I said, just the way people are fed. They're not people. They're feeding horses, pigs, livestock better than the black people who are taking care of it. And he describes hunger so great at times and then being fed well, but you have to eat it in five minutes because you have to go back to work. So there's never this moment in which there is physical satisfaction. And I started to think this is not so far away from my experience, and the reason I've avoided these books is because I didn't want to know. And now I know, and this has made the anger bigger, righteous, bigger, depressing. Um, I feel physically depressed. I feel exhausted, but that's a sign of depression. And I feel, oh, there I was all along. Mm. And so I, 
you know, as a kind of modern person, right? I was, <laughs> I was gonna, I'm living in the modern world. <laughs> Those ghosts don't haunt me. That mm. wretchedness mm. of experience is not mine, but it is actually. And the ways in which I've had to control anger in order to not feel that includes not re- having read them carefully before. So I don't know what to do with the anger, except I'm fighting really, really hard not to be depressed, which is to repress the anger. I have no right except to make it useful. Mm. What, what, <clears throat> what I'm seeing as I read is, this goes back to the spirit, and the spiritual abandonment of children is not unfamiliar to me. And this is what I'm going back to, right? This is what's making me angry, is the spiritual abandonment of children affects people of color profoundly to this day because the skills and the love was so broken by separation, grief, the fear of intimacy, right? Deep fear of intimacy. Um, all of these things became, um, were broken and sort of somehow put back together. But the way that if you're putting like a table back together, the edge, um, edges don't m- mm-hmm. meet up. I'm always amazed when people, or well, I'm amazed by myself actually, that I should have the nerve or temerity to think that I had it together and was distant from this narrative. I think what made me distant was that there's also been a lot of bad art about this shit. Mm. And I didn't want to contribute bad art to it, but I think I'm figuring out a way to talk about it and not be making bad art for white people, mostly. Mm-hmm. I want to make art for myself that addresses this idea of and reality of black maleness and that fracture. Like, why isn't there someone taking care of the kids? Why is, where is he? Where is he is the question. What happened during Vietnam? Why did so many men, I remember, just just literally disappear? Yeah. Walk out of the house one day and never come back? Yeah. Where did he go? Where is he? Hmm. Where is he? That's what is heart-wrenching about reading this. Frederick Douglass is that his father, white father, is only kind of mentioned. Like there's no idea that as a male you can look to another male and have some clue about what the universe is. I never had bedtime stories read to me Mm -hmm. and— I wasn't ushered into the world or escorted into the world. You had to figure that shit out for yourself. And that's a remnant of this kind of profound spiritual disregard that we were taught and that unfortunately we emulate with each other. Since we have no power really in the white world, we do it to each other. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm thinking about this idea of ownership still. Mm-hmm. And so... My analyst, I guess, is saying you have a right to have it. That's really what yes. it is. Yes. Is that we have a right to have it. So what 
does this legacy, this terrible legacy, teach us? Which is, we shouldn't have anything. We shouldn't aspire, right? But what Frederick Douglass is saying is, I don't know what it was in me that made me keep going back to those boys to learn. He knew that there was something there. It's the way that James Baldwin read Uncle Tom's Cabin over and over again and Tales Two Cities over. And he said his mother got so scared she started to hide the books. And he said that he doesn't know why he was reading them over and over, except there was something he had to learn. Mm-hmm. I feel in reading these various narratives, I have a lot to learn in terms of accepting what was in my soul and marrying it to the fact of of this language. I think this goes back to the spiritual question, right, of why I'm attracted to a performer's spirit. It's because it really um, outlasts the temporal and the ephemeral. The beauty of, beauty of theater is that it doesn't exist as you knew it from night to night. It doesn't exist. Right. And so the only unifying thing that we have other than a printed text is the memory of that performer giving us their spirit. And so I feel incredibly blessed as a reader and now to have the spirit of Frederick Douglass in me. I used to read about him, Mm -hmm. and I had a photo of him in my bedroom, and my mother said, oh, isn't that nice, Hilton's interested in history? I was really interested in how hot he looked. He was, like, (laughs) really beautiful. He was so beautiful. And I was like, sure, whatever, Mom. But the... The body of that person to withstand that and to even write it as a memory, writing takes all your courage and energy. And to relive it, to give us that gift, to let us know, I think this is what's profound. If you write it down, someone will find it. Someone will find it. They will find it. And I feel in your writing in particular, for me, mm-hmm. I find myself. Oh, thank and you. And so this is, this is part of, of um, again, like the, the danger that you're talking about or what, what is why you had avoided reading certain kinds of things for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Whether I agree with what you write about a show or not, I know that that I am in there, that Helga the actor is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I've done my very best to understand. Yes. And that criticism is something that c- can be applied and yes. that it's not meant to be destructive. That's right. And so part of my attraction to your work has always been to find myself, to keep finding myself. Mm-hmm. And when I go to my next project, uh, what does it mean to be in a role that may be highly emotional, but not to make it nostalgic or simplistic? Mm-hmm. How do I do that? How mm-hmm. do I tell that story without bringing 
the drama of Helga into the right. story, which is not necessarily good theater. I'm always touched by performers because they have to live with such incredible hope about work and about being seen and about the right kind of work. Um, I mean, their work is them. So it can veer um, into that dangerous territory of, is this acting or an excuse for some solipsism, right? Yes. I think the danger is when you don't have someone to tell you. Right. I remember working with a friend a long time ago on a piece, and she kept insisting on putting certain things in that I kept saying, no, you have to take them out. We already have pity for you. Mm. We already see you. We already have pity for you. There's this wonderful moment in um, Montgomery Clift is, I think, still my favorite film actor because he was just film. He was he knew how it worked and how how to hold you with in in close ups and so on. Anyway, he was in Judgment at Nuremberg and uh, he was. Um, Judy Garland was doing a scene in the film, and Stanley Kramer was with Clift watching her, and he called cut, Stanley Kramer did, and uh, he turned to Clift, who was crying, and he said, isn't she wonderful? And Clift says, no. She plays her tragedy the minute she opens her mouth. Who? That's not... Yeah. I, I get it. That's, we want to see evolution. And also, you know what? It's our job to feel you. It's not your job to feel yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's where so many performers go wrong is that they, through either bad education or self-indulgence, because they have power, um, believe that they're leading with their story or is what we're interested in. But we're not, mm -hmm. really. We're interested in the fiction that will reveal the truth. Every performer comes at you with their story, and that's amazing. What tempers it is the fiction and the craft, and then revealing, <clears throat> excuse me, revealing who you are through this experience of metaphysics as opposed to me, 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 me. You know? <laughs> if I didn't, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Let's go back just a little bit because <clears throat> we're going to want to know who you are mm. and what you do and how you came <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to all of this. And... I was looking and I, I was trying to say, okay, so Hilton's a writer. And I was like, well, no, Hilton's also a curator. Mm -hmm. Hilton's also a photographer. Hilton's a director. Mm -hmm. Hilton's a professor. And Hilton's an author. Say something about yourself in all of these capacities, curator. Oh, um, I, so a friend of mine said Hilton's a real mocker. And it's true. I just like making things. At one point, I was living in Northampton. I was teaching at Smith College, and my neighbors were Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore. 
And they were ma- married at the time, <clears throat> and they were very sweet. It's this very small town, and they would have me for dinner. You know, I'd go over there for dinner. Or, what are you up to? And I'd go over there, and it'd be snowing. It was endlessly snowing. <laughs> and I, I, I watched Thurston just do. Mm. So he would. He had this little office off the dining room. It was a big, beautiful house. Kim's painting studio was upstairs. Her costumes were upstairs. And I would watch them just make something. Mm. I was like, well, if they're not guilty about taking up space, why should I be guilty about it? And I was always guilty about taking up space. Mm. This goes back to... Yes, it does. Claiming, right? Yeah. Yes, it does. Through the example of Thurston Moore in particular, I learned it was your job to make stuff. And it was also your job not to overthink it, not to overthink the making. The making was the, the beautiful thing, not explaining it, not analyzing it, but doing it so that it existed. And it was then that I started, and I wasn't really writing a lot at that point. I was kind of... What year do we this think this This was about is? 2005 or so. Two, no, 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 this is after that. So 2008. Really? Yeah. You uh, weren't writing so much then? I was writing some, but I wasn't... I was writing some. Okay. Or I wasn't writing fully, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Okay. And I, I would then go to, like, noise shows with Thurston at two in the morning, and there'd be these kids who had made amazing T-shirts, and, and I was like, wait a minute, whoa, there's this whole world that doesn't even say, is it okay? Right. It just does. Mm. And sure, there are conflicts in other ways, but this thing is yours. And it was just an incredibly invaluable lesson to me. Another person who was very influential, um, I was trying to write a profile of Cecil Taylor, and um, it never came to pass because... No one can write a profile of Cecil Taylor. <laughs> he he is himself, and the language is his own. Mm-hmm. But visiting him a lot in um, his house in Brooklyn, I'd see his poetry, I'd see his music, I'd see a camera. He didn't stop. The borders, that's the thing. The borders aren't... The borders are self-imposed. No one is saying... Helga, you can't sing. No one is saying, Helga you, Helga, you can't act. Helga, you can't have a radio show. If you didn't have those things, it's because of the limitations you put on yourself. Mm-hmm. These two guys, through examples, I started to just, just make stuff. To make stuff and to not be embarrassed if it failed or it didn't work out that time or whatever. There's always going to be another time if you stay in good health and good company. Tell me about your photographs. Oh, um, that's another thing. Okay, so when I was a teenager, I was, I always loved pictures, and I always loved, this is in the days before it digitized anything, and I would go to the Brooklyn Public Library all the time and look at photo books <clears throat> by Cartier Brisson, Irving Penn, Avedon. And I was mentored by a man named Owen Dodson who gave me a Roloflex. 
And there was a kid in my neighborhood who said, oh, I like taking pictures or whatever. And I gave it to him because that is who I was until yesterday. And I gave him the camera. And I became friends with a guy who was very protective of me in certain ways. And, no, I was in my 20s, I guess, early 20s. And a mutual friend said, oh, isn't that nice? Hilton gave X person the camera. And my friend said, I haven't seen his byline Mm. on any photographs. Mm. I then become a picture editor at The Village Voice. So I'm nurturing all these photographers I became close to a number of photographers. I nurture, hopefully nurture them. And I would do pictures every once in a while, but I'd like lose the film or the camera was really junky and I couldn't get the battery to work. It wasn't until I got this um, app on the iPhone for Polaroids that I remembered how much I loved Polaroids when I was a kid, and I used to take photographs, and there's an album of pictures I took of my sister, who was my muse, when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I stopped. Why did I stop? Why did you stop? I was taking up too much space, right? I was taking up... I wasn't Mm. oppressed enough. Mm. I was taking up too much space. Now, this doesn't just translate to work. Of course. It goes into love, right? Mm -hmm. Why would I be with someone who would want me Mm. back? Or why would I be with someone who um, didn't put language where the love should be? Why should I, why wouldn't I be with those people? They can smell it on me. Right. They really can. Mm Mm-hmm. And the minute that funk is off you, <laughs> there is a person who says, I like you. You, right you. there. You, exactly, as you are, you. Or And they say, I miss you. And they mm-hmm. say, um, I just want to be with you. Shockers, all of this. Shocking, shocking, shocking. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. learning. Mm-hmm. Writer? The writing was always the thing that was mine because I could hide it. I started when I was eight years old. Before I even really read, I wrote things down, stories, voices. Um, Writing as a way for you to learn to observe without being observed. That's right. I could put it in notebooks under my bed. Mm. The person I showed my writing to was my mother, And we never discussed it. I would leave a story on the dining room table for her, and she would write her comments when I went to sleep in the morning. And then I'd read her comments, and that was what we would discuss. Not in the way that we're having a chat now. Mm -hmm. We never talked about it. It was all through writing. So your mom was your first editor. Editor, that's right. I I didn't know that. Yes. So that's how I communicated with my mother about being an artist. I didn't say I'm an artist. I did it. So what you're bringing out today in this conversation was like the doing was always the conversation for me. Mm-hmm. And you've known this, you know this from work experiences with me. If someone 
talks about it too much or overthinks it, I'll you just were leave. So done. I uh, yeah. so done. Because <laughs> that's not the process. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah. process is I gave you the thing. Try stuff. Helga is flawless, but keep going. Don't worry about me. Right. Like, don't worry. Right. Don't be good. Be ruthless. Yeah. In making the most beautiful thing that you can do. And seeing that Thurston didn't have that struggle took a lot of anxiety away from me. I always, I was always amazed by fiction writers because they were taking up the world, right? Like they could remake the world. I didn't know how to do that. But what I knew how to do was be as hard as it was to remain open to the experience of learning and thinking. And that's really, to go back to Frederick Douglass, that's what's so moving to me is that despite this, it's like Anne Frank, you know, despite it all, I still believe people are, no, he's not saying I believe people are good at heart. He's saying I believe I was good at heart Mm -hmm. or that I had enough of myself to say these words are important to learn, to understand my condition. And isn't that a big thing, to have enough of oneself? Yes. In that that degradation and devastation, there's still that. Yeah. So I'm learning. I used to be like, okay, you can't complain. And now I'm like, don't shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. Keep talking. Keep saying I'm angry. It is constructive, actually. Yes, and it makes the room safe. Yes. We think it makes people unsafe and afraid of us. Yes. I'm reading, no wonder my head's so fucked up. I'm reading in tandem William Faulkner's stories. (laughs) What's the matter with you? I'm losing my fucking mind. (laughs) I'm losing my mind. And his brilliance is to describe... White hierarchy. Yes. Right? Yes. And so there's a story about these men going after a black man to lynch him. Mm. And in that horror, he describes how whiteness plays against itself, how the power of whiteness plays against itself. And so there is... their hierarchy. And so the black figure is there and kind of longed for as a place of safety and custodian of civility, right? And there's this enormous violence against themselves. Yeah, They're feeding on themselves. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they feed on us? Mm-hmm. Or the f- history of us being available to them in this way. His genius is to say, it's so broken down and crazy. Um, let me show you how crazy it is in this language that is so crazy. It is not stream of consciousness. It is American. It is so American. And Faulkner is, is and Flannery O'Connor oh my God. are two authors I just, I had had the hardest time with because... Because of the Hilton, truth of their beca- fracture. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And because I see, and in the place in me that wants to blame, 
I cannot. No, don't. But I can't. Here's the thing. There's that story of hers, Everything That Rises Must Converge, where the white woman buys a hat, and she says, in this hat I won't meet myself coming or going. She then meets a black woman on the bus, post-segregation, with the same Same hat. hat. Who and the white woman in what she feels is a gesture of the new white civility gives the little boy a penny. The black woman knocks her the fuck down. <laughs> her son says, Don't do it. She does it. The woman knocks her down. This is the truth of what has happened and will always keep happening. If you insist, as James Baldwin says, if you insist on being white, I'm going to have to insist on being black. Mm-hmm. Professor. I think it's just wrapped up in the gorgeousness of access. What universities give you is a tremendous gift, and the gift is access to students to this vulnerability and ability to listen and to learn humanity, Mm. learn the history of humanity and learn how to be humane in your actions, thoughts, and deeds as artists. I teach in the arts program at Columbia, and what is amazing about Columbia is that it gives each kid context that there is a history to this. And that's what I give them is the window onto history, that there is a context for this thing that interests you, Hmm. that there is a important relationship. Just as I'm learning about my relationship to Frederick Douglass, they're learning about their relationship to Jean-Luc Godard, Buford Delaney, Roland Barthes, James Baldwin, they're learning how are we, what are the ways in which we are not separate? What are the ways in which we are like each other? Does that feel like a very important thing to you? Enormous, because it's part of the art, I think. It's part of the art, and it's also something that really is teaching me um, something about how to be connected to other people, um, outside of my ego, outside of my ego needs, right? There's our, our needs as artists, and there's our personal needs for companionship, love, whatever. But it's outside of that. It's outside of my psychoanalysis. It's outside of all of that. It's out. It really is in the greater service of something else. It's like praying in a way. You're going to meet people that you pray with. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that. Yeah. Author. That goes back to the, that's a very interesting thing. I've just left my publisher um, who published White Girls, and I didn't feel I was moving forward as a book author. Um, I was afraid of books because they were permanent, and I had the trauma of publishing my first book and having a lot of acrimony from my family about it. Despite the fact that I was loving my sisters in that book, there was, except for one sister whom you know about, um, uniformly, uniform criticism about what I'd written 
which then traumatized me because it was hard enough, as we know, to get out there. And of course I deserved the trauma. I shut, This is what I mean by not writing. Yes. And it, it was through writing White Girls and being independent and being an, with an independent publisher that I started to get it back. And I don't know... I think it's leading to a lot of things because I have a bunch of projects that I'm finishing up. And so I think it's a new phase that maybe incorporates all this stuff, right? The teaching and photos and they might just be between hardcovers and people can grab it without having to uh, ask me to send it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they can get it themselves. It's great. Is there anything else you feel that that we haven't talked about? So that's one question. And then the second question and the final question is, is there a question that you would like to ask of another artist for season two? It doesn't matter who the artist is, okay. but anything about about uh, creativity, creative process, whatever. I think, I think two things. I think because you are so good at this job as you are at all the jobs I've seen you in, no, I don't feel that you have not asked me um, everything. Um, Season two, my hope is for you. The question would be for you, which is why not? That's my question for you. So when you feel haltingly or when you're going to stop, just remember Hilton. The question for Hilton is, why not, Helga? Why not? That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Helga. (laughs) We are at our 10th and final episode for season one. <laughs> I don't I think I don't know how to do this without getting a little bit corny and thanking all the people who came and sat across from me and spoke openly from their hearts about their experiences about their lives and about what connects all of us this was always my my hope for this work to be an extension of a creative conversation that I was already having with myself and with the world and with my guests and to continue to bring healing and clarity and connection between you and you and you and me. Though we're done recording the season, we aren't done with the conversation. You can still contact me at helga at wqxr.org or reach out to me on Facebook. And so before I go, I leave you, I leave myself really with the question that Hilton Alls left me with for season two, which was why not when we are feeling that none of this world makes sense, that we are somehow the only ones feeling what we're feeling or doing what we're doing. There is the question about how to move forward, which is why not? That's certainly the question that we will be undertaking for season two. Yeah, why not? 
Here we go. Thank you for season one. This episode of Helga was produced by Julia Alsop and executive producer Alex Ambrose. It was mixed by Curtis McDonald and original music by Alex Overington. Special thanks to Cindy Kim, Lorraine Maddox, Michael Alcesser, Jacqueline Sincata, and John Chow.